And we're going to be picking up in the 32nd verse of Acts 4. If you guys want to grab a Bible in the seat pocket in front of you or take out uh, your smart devices, you can find it there too if you just type in Acts 4.32. We are going to hopefully be venturing all the way to the middle of Acts chapter 5 today. As you guys uh, make your way that direction, let me just remind you, in the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as we've been studying through this, what we saw in uh, chapter 1 was uh, Jesus actually appearing there with the disciples and instructing them, specifically in verse 8, to go and be witnesses uh, to these three uh, distinct areas, or four distinct areas, I should say, uh, to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what Jesus does by instructing them in that way, he actually gives us an outline for the entire uh, book of Acts. Uh, Chapters 1 through 7, we see the church going and becoming witnesses there to Jerusalem. And when we get to chapters 8 and 9, the the message expands from Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea. And then finally, uh, thanks to the uh, Apostle Paul, they go to the ends of the earth from chapter 10 all the way through the end of the book. But in Jesus telling them this and giving them this command to go and be witnesses, he doesn't tell them to go under their own power, under their own strength, but he says that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And this is where we get this uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, this initial filling of the Holy Spirit. And, And the Spirit appears over the head of the disciples like great tongues of fire as the rushing wind comes into the room. And and the early church in chapter 2 is then uh, born. And out of that birth of the early church, this 120 believers that were gathered, the Apostle Peter is given this great evangelical message, and he goes out there and he preaches to the people, and this small little church goes from 120 to 3,000 in this amazing uh, series of events. Now that then leads us to chapter 3, where we see the continuation of the work of Jesus, exactly as he said. His ministry involved healing as well as teaching the Word. The healing really just pointed back to the teaching, back to the Word of God, so that people could be saved. And so we see as Peter is able to, with John, actually exercise this unbelievable healing with the lame man outside of the gate beautiful. And from that point on, Peter is then able to give his second evangelical message, And now an additional 5,000 people come into the church. So an amazing time of growth of the believers is taking place. But something else also happens. Chapter 4, we see the first opposition to the church. So as the church is growing there in Jerusalem, so is opposition against the church in Jerusalem. And the Sanhedrin, at the beginning of chapter 4, where we were at last week, they gathered together, they threw and John in jail, but they could not threaten them enough to stop the message. And so as the church comes back together, they gather back there together at the home that they were at in Jerusalem, they began to pray at the end of our time last week. But you might recall they didn't pray for the persecution to be taken away. They prayed for boldness in the middle of the persecution. That's their prayers. Lord, give us a boldness. Give us the ability to go into the fire and actually speak your name profoundly. And so they speak then with boldness, and what the Lord does is he gives them an additional filling of the Holy Spirit. So where we ended off last week, they are refilled again with the Holy Spirit. So if you're ever wondering how many times can we be filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, over and over and over again. And why, Sari? Because we leak. We are cracked pots, each of us, right? We are cracked and broken vessels, and so the Holy Spirit spills out. We need a continual refilling. It's a fresh refilling, too. So if any of you were trying to get kids out the door this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't take long before the Holy Spirit to just spill out all, all out all over the place, right? Get in the car! 
and, and it's amazing. So we need a refilling of the Holy Spirit. I, I like to pray every day, Lord, fill me up with your spirit. Lord, just, just let me be full, full all the way to the top, to overflowing. And so that's very much what we see taking place. So as they're refilled with the Holy Spirit, where we're going to begin this week and what we're really going to look at through uh, this entire message is what it looks like to have a spirit-led life, what it looks like to be led by the Spirit in the Christian life. And it's three different things that we're going to cover today. Uh, First of all, the spirit-led life is one of unity in verses 32 through 37 of chapter 4. Uh, Secondly, the spirit-led life is one of purity. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we're going to look at a story there that surrounds a purity and the lack thereof. Uh, And then thirdly and finally, the spirit-led life is a powerful life. It's one that has the power of the Holy Spirit in it. And that's verses 12 through 16 of chapter 5. So let's pick up in verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the multitude of those who were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so we see this unity of the church that really had formed there in Jerusalem. They were of one heart and one soul. They're of one accord. And what you'll find is as a church grows up together in the spirit, we'll actually develop a unity. There'll be a bond there. It doesn't mean that we're all the same. The church really should be a diverse group that has unity in the middle of the diversity. We don't all uh, think the same. We don't all even like the same things, and yet there's a unifying factor, and that is the belief and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that makes us more interconnected, more related than even our own family, uh, our blood family as it is. And so what we see is this unity allows them then to bear witness is what we see in verse 33. They had great power. They were able to, again, continue the work of Christ with uh, miracles, and, and But these miracles pointed back to, just like the Holy Spirit always does, he's always pointing back to Jesus. It allowed them to speak to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then great grace was upon them all. I love that, that the early church had a great amount of grace. And what is grace but unfavor? We do not deserve the grace that he gives us, and yet he gives it to us anyway. Mercy is uh, not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And so we see they had great grace in their congregation. Verse 34, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so what we see is they were willing to give of what they had been able to produce or what they had already been given. These early apostles and the leaders of the church, they came and actually lived in this communal lifestyle. Now, as I suggest this, it's going to cause some of you to squirm a little bit in your seat. And, and, and as I read through commentaries throughout the week, what I found is there was a great deal of controversy about this passage because it looks like the scriptures are actually promoting communism or socialism, that for everybody things should just be all equal and all the money should be thrown in the middle of the pot. But I want to tell you, as I looked at a, a bunch of criticism on these verses that I noticed, 
for the early church is while their method might have been wrong, and we're going to see later on in Acts that their methods weren't all right. God had actually given them a command to actually go and disperse, to go be witnesses to all these places. But what were they doing? They threw their money in a pot to hang out and just be with one another. It was not what God had commanded, and yet their heart was in the right spot. (laughs) Their heart was to actually care for one another. And what I love about the Lord is even when we get the action wrong, even when we have the wrong application, what he is always looking at is what was the heart behind the thing. And so never in Scripture do I actually see criticism of what they did here. And I think that's important to point out. The Holy Spirit is not looking to smack these guys over the head for getting it wrong, but instead what we see is them actually loving and caring for one another. They did this out of compassion, not out of compulsion. They didn't feel compelled like they had to do these things. They did them just because they wanted to help and wanted to take care of one another. And social programs, by the way, are important to the Lord. But the thing is, uh, what you'll find in Scripture, this is scriptural, is if you want to eat, you must work. And so I know that's a, a monumental thing to mention. But what you find is back in Leviticus chapter 19 is that God's social program looked like if you were a wealthy landowner and you had property and you went in to harvest your field, you were not to harvest the corners of the field and clean the field which is to go back over it a second time and clean up all the rest of the grain that had dropped or been left behind. Why? Because the poor and the widows were the ones that were allowed to have access to the corners of the field and the gleanings of the field, and the same was true with the vineyard, which means God wanted them to go out and work for it just a little bit, just enough to be able to provide. This is what God's provision is always looking out for. But I pointed out to you earlier that he's also always concerned at what the heart of the believer is like and that he's not looking for us to just be legalistic and and overlaid with rules. And we're introduced here in this uh, story of unity to a guy named Barnabas. His name was Joseph. That is, they called him Barnabas, which is the son of encouragement. He's an interesting character because as we go throughout Acts, we're going to see him play a very vital role. He is the one that goes with the Apostle Paul on the first ever evangelistic uh, outreach team. It's, it's Paul and Barnabas going out to the ends of the earth together. They go on the first missionary journey with one another. But what we learn about Barnabas, is, on top of him just being a son of encouragement, he was a tremendous encourager, especially of the Apostle Paul. You know, nobody really wanted to invite the Apostle Paul into the party, by the way. Um, it turned out that, that they didn't really like a guy whose former pastime was killing Christians. I don't know what their problem but they, they weren't that excited about the Apostle Paul when he first showed up. But it was Barnabas that actually welcomed Paul in, and so he was wonderful at encouraging. But what we're told here is that he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus. And so he was a Jew from a specific family of Jews. That is, to be a Levite was to be the one handpicked by God, the tribe that was handpicked to actually serve and minister there in the temple. And so of all the tribes of Israel, only one tribe was picked by God to be the servants of God to minister to him there in Jerusalem. And so it's this uh, cool designation uh, that Barnabas has got as a Levite in Judaism. But why is that important to us uh, in Christianity? Because there's no tribes in Christianity. What I found fascinating as I was thinking about this is, uh, as a Levite, the one thing Barnabas was not supposed to have a possession of was land. He was not supposed to be a possessor of land because what God told the Levites is, uh, I am your inheritance. 
I'm the one that's going to take care of you as a Levite. So don't trust in the work of your hands, but instead trust in me. And yet we get in the scripture, what we see is Barnabas, a Levite, having land, uh, sold it. And so what he had actually done is violated what the law of God said, is, is he wasn't supposed to be a possessor. And yet in Judaism, uh, being uh, instructed legalistically what he was and wasn't supposed to do, it couldn't change Barnabas's heart. His heart was, I want to own land. I'm going to take care of things. That's the way it's going to be done. And yet in Christianity, uh, he was willing to actually give up the thing he wouldn't give in Judaism, if that makes sense. And so Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul actually addresses what the issue is with legalism. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 24, Therefore the law was our tutor, or our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So the law was actually put in place by God. It was perfect at what it did. It was a schoolmaster, and what the schoolmaster was teaching us is, we need a Savior. At every turn, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And so at every point in time, we need a Savior. That's precisely what it was to point us back to. Verse 25 says, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And what I love about this is here for Barnabas, the man who possessed ground illegally he wasn't supposed to have, he didn't give it up under the law. He instead gave it up because he desired to. It was an inside-out relationship instead of an outside-in relationship. And that's ultimately what the, the never uh, dictate the heart. That's ultimately what it is. It, it's only the law of liberty that can actually change our heart. Galatians 5, verse 14, this is what Paul continued to say. He said, I'll actually start in verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh or to sin, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so for Barnabas, this son of encouragement, what the law could never do for him, the liberty of Christ actually did, and he did it willingly. And it's a beautiful thing as the church grows in unity, what we're able to do that we weren't able to do in legalism. The second thing we're going to see is a spirit-led life is one of purity. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, and his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so now we have these two uh, early members of the church, or members of the early church, uh, Ananias, whose name uh, translated means God is gracious, and his wife Sapphira, whose name means beautiful. And as everybody was there in the early church, and they were selling their land and their property, and they were giving it to the apostles, they looked at this, and they said, well, wait a minute. Uh, my name's God is gracious, and your, uh, your name is beautiful. We better keep up with what the outside says it, we should keep up with. And so they go, we're going to have to sell our property. And yet what we find is they held a little bit back. So then in verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, 
but to God. And so what we see is uh, Peter is now making it clear, and I think it's important to point this out, is that the gift of Ananias, it wasn't about the money as much as it was about his heart. In his heart, what he wanted to do was look way more holy than what he was actually willing to do. And Peter makes it very clear. Look, uh, when the ground was yours, it was yours. And when you sold the ground, the money was yours. What you did with the money wasn't the issue. It was the fact you wanted to represent yourself like you'd given it all to the Lord, and yet you really had not. And so in verse 4, this is a little sidebar. We see an interesting proof text of the deity of Jesus, of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have to men is what he says, but you have lied to God when in the previous verse uh, Peter says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. So we see that the Holy Spirit definitely has deity in these verses. Now then, verse uh, 5, continuing, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Uh, now, excuse me, they wrapped him up and then buried him. And so we see that uh, Ananias, having lied now to the Holy Spirit, is actually uh, struck down by God, and he died. Welcome to Woodlawn Chapel. <laughs> I mean, uh, last week it was, hey, uh, as a Christian, you're going to be persecuted. This week it's, if you lie, you die. I told Angela we might put that over the top of the door. I feel like it's going to be super encouraging to people. Welcome to church where if you lie, you're going to die. Um, that might not be the best uh, method. But the, the, the point is, the, the issue here for uh, Ananias was not the things. It was the hypocrisy. It was that he wanted to represent himself as someone other than what he actually was inside. He was a hypocrite. And God took that uh, very, very seriously. And I want to point this out specifically in the realm of giving. Uh, we don't talk about, uh, unless it comes up in Scripture. And now I'm going to say something that you probably never heard uh, in church, and it's probably one of the dumbest things uh, a pastor or a leader of a church can say, but I'm going to say it anyway. God doesn't need your money. He does not need it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If he wants to sell one, he can at any point in time and have all the money he needs. The earth and the fullness thereof is his. He does not need it. It is a privilege to get to worship in that way. And for the longest time, uh, at least for me personally, I felt like that's all church was ever after. There's a reason we don't pass the plate. It's because it creeped me out for the longest time. I didn't, I didn't care for the feeling like I was being compelled to give. And so, for me, I just didn't give. I had this great excuse that, well, the church probably wouldn't do anything good with the money anyway, or they can't be trusted. And the reality was I was just a greedy guy. I didn't want to give to the Lord until much later uh, when I realized what a blessing it was to actually be able to get to give. And then to get to give to the Lord became a form of worship. That's ultimately what giving is. It is a way in which we can worship the Lord. And I didn't even fully grasp that until we were in Farmington and things with the business, we hit a dry spot. I mean, we had where uh, if we were going to tithe 10%, uh, 10% of zero, by the way, is zero. <laughs> I mean, we had no income coming in for a season. And, and when that was stripped away, I was heartbroken. And so to go from a guy who was unwilling to give 
even though I knew from my, you know, Baptist upbringing, that's what I'm supposed to do, I wasn't going to do it, to then actually being heartbroken because in this season, I am not able to do something I have grown to love, and that was give back to the Lord what was already his in the first place. And so the, the point of this when it comes to giving to understand is the Lord is not after your money. He's after your heart. He's after your heart. Now, continuing in verse 7. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And Peter answered her and said, Tell me how much you sold the land for. Or tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. And so great fear came upon all the church and upon all those. And so here's Sapphira. She's now coming in to speak to the apostle Peter. She's probably been summoned there to speak to him. Uh, three hours later, by the way, and yet she has no idea that her husband had died. I know what you're saying. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the book of face. All the ways we have to communicate with one another, they did not possess. And yet, um, do you have, if you've ever worked in an office anywhere, do you have any idea how fast word of mouth travels? I mean, the coconut telegraph, if the boss growls at somebody or somebody gets let go, I mean, it's like, it's, it's through there in a matter of seconds, faster than any text message is how quickly people can communicate when something major has happened. I got to tell you, for a small community, the Lord striking someone dead in front of the Apostle Peter is a big deal. And yet here she arrives, and she has no idea what she's walking into. And I wonder how many times this is us with sin in our life. <laughs> that, we, that everybody else knows it, that it's obvious to everybody else, and yet we are so blinded by our own sin and our own issues that we have no idea why everybody else is like, yeah, it's all that coming. So a question is, do we love each other enough to actually bring those things up when we see that in someone's life that we care about? I would encourage you guys to be able to do that, that real love looks like having hard conversations with people, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. The question might be, if you're looking at this, was this, uh, first of all, I thought you were talking about purity. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, secondly, is this really so bad that they had to die for it? So as we consider this, was it really as big a deal? Let me just tell you that any time the Lord is doing something new in a season, in a situation, what we find is he deals with things very differently in different seasons when you go throughout Scripture. But one thing is always consistent is that God hates hypocrisy. Right? He doesn't hate a bunch of things, but he hates sin, he hates hypocrisy. Think about the people that Jesus was always the hardest on in his ministry. I mean, he'd hang out and eat with sinners and drunks and prostitutes and tax collectors and liars, but when it came to hypocrites, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe is a call for damnation upon them. And so he's giving them warning, and, and God hates that, not because he hates the hypocrite, because he knows what it does to us, that it's a killer. 
Now, if you think about how God handles situations differently, uh, sometimes it seems like extremely. I'll go back to Joshua chapter 6. You probably remember from Sunday school the story of the walls of Jericho, right? That here's Joshua coming into the promised land, and as they come into the land, they're commanded to march around the double-walled city of Jericho. I mean, seemingly an impenetrable uh, city wall. And yet all they had to do by the order of the Lord was march around the city, blow the trumpets, and the walls fell down amazingly, miraculously. But the one thing the Lord told them in this victory was, don't take anything for yourselves. Don't take an animal. Don't take a possession. This is all an offering to me. Burn it all. Why did God say this? Because he knew they needed to learn obedience. So for the children of Israel, they march around the city. The walls fall in. They cave in. Everybody leaves out of there. They set fire to the thing except one guy, Achan. Achan decides, you know what? I think my baby could use a little bit of gold back home. I think she could use a few of these things, and nobody's going to notice. It's not going to hurt anybody after all. And so he takes a few things for himself, unbeknownst to anyone else. Now, they then come onto the next town, they have to conquer, and that is the small town of Ai. It's not a double-walled city. It's not a powerful city. It would be like, if you imagine high school football, uh, we just played Bloomington in a big football game, and now we're going to play Martinsville. I mean, really? Like, it's the blue streaks. Nobody even knows what a blue streak is. So we're not even going to send the big-time team. We're going to send the JV squad down to Martinsville to contend with the mighty blue streaks. And that's precisely what it does. He takes the JV squad. He sends a few thousand men to conquer this little town of Ai. And they proceed to get their heinies whipped. They get drove right out of town, and over 30 people lose their lives. So much so that Joshua cries out to the Lord, Lord, why have you cursed us? What's going on here? And God says, there's sin in your camp. I told you not to take any possession and yet someone did and so after an investigation what they find out is Achan turns up and and what they do is they bring him out in front of the camp and they have him executed not only Achan but his entire family gets executed now you hear that story and really like he just stole a few trinkets. I mean, you look at throughout the, the rest of Scripture. I mean, the book of Judges, they're doing way worse stuff than what happened here. And yet you see the birth of a new thing, a birth of a nation. What God was wanting to do was make it very clear what idolatry was going to do for the nation of Israel. Ultimately, what happens to the nation? 586 B.C., they get taken into captive because of idolatry. What God knew was later on down the road, the thing they weren't willing to deal with on that day was going to be their undoing. And so what we find is uh, sin, by the way, as you look at Aiken's family, every time we think it only affects us, it always hurts other people. If you're in a spot of perpetual sin in your life, you get somebody you care about in that spot, I can assure you it always affects other people, almost always those we care about the most. And so it seems extreme as God uh, ushers in the birth of this nation, and yet what he's trying to do is make something that they would remember in their minds very clearly. This is how God's going to deal with idol worship. Now, fast forward to our story today, and we see the birth of a new thing, the birth of a new church. And what is God specifically concerned about? The same thing Jesus was teaching about over and over again. 
hypocrisy, right? He was speaking to hypocrisy. Why? Because he knows it's going to affect the church. And you look throughout church history, what is the biggest plague on the church? It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, it kills the Christian church. And here's three specific ways that hypocrisy kills. The first one is it kills our witness. If I'm a hypocrite, it it drives people away from church. How many of you have either said or heard it said by someone thinking about church that I would go if it wasn't for all those hypocrites? Right? But the thing is, drove out all the hypocrites from church, there wouldn't be many of us left. including the guy speaking to you right now. I mean, that's the reality, right? Like, we all are dealing with some kind of hypocrisy we're trying to drive out of our life. But the thing about sin is it never just is isolated to us and us alone. And so when we think about how it affects and hurts our witness to others, I'm going to go back again to an Old Testament story, the story of David and Bathsheba, right? Here's the Bathsheba incident where David looks out over his castle and he looks down and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. He wants her and so he brings her into his house. They have an illicit affair. She actually gets pregnant, which leads David to have to then kill her husband to cover up what he'd really done. He was busy living two different lives. He wanted to hide this life from everybody else, but he wanted to appear far better than what he was. And yet he gets visited a year later. An entire year goes by thinking the cover-up was all good. And he gets visited by his old buddy, Nathaniel the prophet. And Nathaniel rolls in. He says, I got a story for you, Dave. You're going to love this one. Uh, imagine two men. You've got a really rich guy, and he's got all kinds of flocks and everything else, and, and yet you've got a poor guy living next to him, and he's got one little ewe lamb. And they love that little lamb like a pet, had it in their house. And the rich guy is having a big old party. He's got friends coming up to his flocks, and he thinks, well, I don't want to kill one of my sheep. I'll just go and steal the sheep from my next-door neighbor. He's never going to know the difference, and even if he does, what's he going to do about it? And so he takes the ewe lamb, and he kills it, and he serves it to his buddies for dinner. And David hears this story, and he is incensed. He is so upset. He says, this man will die and pay back fourfold. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how bad our sin looks on somebody else? That sin looks so much worse. And and the funny thing is, uh, the law actually said that they were supposed to pay back fourfold. It wasn't they were supposed to die. And so here's David. He's going to die and pay back fourfold. And Nathaniel gets his finger out, and he points right in the chest of the king, and he says, you're the man. You could have heard a pin drop in that room, I bet. You're the man, David. This is you. And so he, he falls down, and he weeps, and he cries, and then he proceeds to be told by the Lord, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, the first part of that verse. This is what the Lord says to him, what the issue is in regards to his witness. He says, however, this is the Lord speaking to David, because you've done this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Don't you see you hurt your witness? The reason Israel was put in her spot was to be a light to the nations all around, to actually draw them to Jehovah, to draw them to the true and living God and leave their pagan worship. And now you've blasphemed the name of the Lord. That's why this is such a big deal. You've just destroyed all of what I've been up to 
with the nation of Israel. And so David, realizing what he done, what he's done, he writes Psalm 51, which, by the way, if you've ever been in a season like this, I'd encourage you to read through Psalm 51. It's one of my favorites. But what David says there in verse 6 is, he says, Behold, you desire the truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What the Lord desires in our life is purity, even in the inward parts. <laughs> That's where witness becomes effective. Even when inside we've got purity, it's an inside-out relationship that we have with the Lord. Now, the second thing that hypocrisy does in our life is it kills our joy. <laughs> what you'll find if you're struggling with being hypocritical is you will become more critical of others you will begin to, to look around and go, well, you know what, I'm not doing so great, but I'm doing way better than what they're doing. And, and eventually, so critical of other people and other situations that you find yourself uh, without joy altogether. And the Apostle Paul says this in 2 uh, Corinthians, oh, I missed it, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 12. He says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. And so the Brock Ashley version of that, the BAV, says, uh, When you compare yourself with yourself, all you do is confuse yourself. And that's precisely what, uh, what Paul's trying to get at. These guys are all busy comparing themselves against themselves and looking at other people and going, yeah, we're not doing great, but we're doing way better than what they're doing. And, and what happens is as we go down that road, uh, we find that we have less and less and less joy in a situation because I'm now critical of everything. I'm critical of every possible scenario. And what God wants us to have instead, Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says that the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's actually a joy that comes from enjoying every moment, not in eating and drinking, but in peace and in righteousness. That's the life should look like. Many of you might have sang that in church, right? The kingdom of God's not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Nobody ever sang that in church? Nobody. I'm getting a lot of head few head nods, I feel better about that. Okay, so that's what the Lord actually wants us to have. He wants us to have joy in our life. The third thing that hypocrisy does is it kills our peace. The word, as Jesus would call them, hypocrites, when we studied through Matthew, was actually a Greek word for an actor. And in uh, Greek plays, what they would do is that one actor would play both the part of the villain and the part of the hero. And what he would do to indicate which one he was playing the part of is he would put on different masks, which is where the word hypocrite actually gets its name and why we say when someone's hypocritical, they're being two-faced. That's where that came from. It's from this Greek playwright. And so what you'll find is if you're in a spot of hypocrisy in your life, living a double life, uh, you are going to be flat out exhausted. <laughs> that so often when we are trying to keep all these different parts of our life compartmentalized, what I mean by that is uh, I act uh, this way and speak this way at work. I act this way and speak this way at home. I act this way and speak this way around my buddies. 
And, and then I get to church. Boy, I act a way different way. A church got to be cleaned up for Jesus after. And so keeping all these different things and areas of our life compartmentalized is exhausting because what happens when they intersect? What happens when they come into contact with one another? That's just plain terrifying. And so we find ourselves in a spot where we try to keep all these different things juggled and in the air and keep this separate from this and hope that didn't find out about that. And, and next thing you know, we are just flat out exhausted and there is no peace in that. As someone who lived a double life for a long time, living one way when I was at work, why, honey? Because that's how you have to be around construction guys. They don't understand any other way. That's how I have to handle them. That's how I have to speak to them. But then at home, a different way. Then around my friends, a different way. It, it was absolutely exhausting. And I can tell you there is so much more freedom. I want to encourage you in this and living one way continually regardless of where you're at. <laughs> it, it, it is so freeing to just go, you know what? This is just how I'm going to be, whether you come over to my house, whether I see you at church, whether I see you at work. It's going to be one way and one way only. And the Lord's desire in that way isn't that we would go the opposite direction and go, I'm just going to be a sinner all the time. Let it rip. But instead to be holy. The word throughout Leviticus, and I know what you're going to say, that's in it, right? It's, it's Leviticus, that's the old law. But what the Lord says over and over and over again is be holy for I am holy. Be pure for I am pure. This is how I want you to operate. Be above reproach. And so that's the old covenant, right? I don't need to worry about that. But then we go uh, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, and what Peter says there in verse uh, 15, excuse me, yeah, verse 15, he says, but he, the Lord, who called you is holy. You also be holy in your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. It didn't change with the new covenant. It doesn't change in the New Testament. His desire in our life is to have purity, to have holiness throughout everything that we're up to. And here's the thing. The Lord hates hypocrisy because it kills us. One last Old Testament story. I was talking yesterday to the twins, and they, they love to talk to me about whatever they're reading in Scripture. And they were talking about the life of Saul, and they were at the end of 1 Samuel. And they were talking about the tragedy of the death of Saul, who was killed during a battle with the Philistines. And, and so we just had this conversation. Here's the deal, guys. Uh, Saul's issue actually took place chapters ahead of that. He was actually doing pretty good when he was called to be the king of Israel. Uh, he was called uh, to be king, and he has this great, tremendous victory over the Amalekites. But the Lord was very specific when it came to dealing with the Amalekites. Uh, he said, uh, kill everybody. <laughs> Wipe them all out. I mean, th these people are vile. Uh, they were such uh, pagan worshipers. They would actually sacrifice their own children uh, to the gods that they would serve. They were a, a wicked people, and the Lord said, you know what? Wipe them all out. So Samuel the prophet goes to visit after this great uh, victory that Saul has. And as he's coming up uh, to the victory, by this time uh, Samuel's eyes had gone dark. He couldn't see very well. But as he walks up to Saul, this new king, he says, uh, Saul greets him. He says, oh, what a great victory. The Lord had a tremendous victory today. He's got his Jesus smile on. Man, we did so good with the Lord today. And Samuel says, 
What's the bleeding of sheep that I hear in the background? Why do I hear animals in the background? What have you done? Well, I mean, I only kept the choicest of the animals. I mean, I only kept the best of the best people, the Amalekites. I mean, after all, they could be our slaves, you know. I mean, these animals would be great to sacrifice to the Lord. All about Jesus. I'm ready to serve. But Saul said, and from that moment on, he lost it all. It was a downhill spiral all the way to the end of 1 Samuel where he eventually dies in battle against the Philistines because he would not deal with the Amalekites. The Amalekites, anytime you look through the Old Testament, are always a picture of sin in the Old Testament. And so the reality is God wanted to deal very harshly with sin in the life of Saul, and yet he was unwilling. And what resulted, if you go to 2 Samuel, the very beginning of the book, in 2 Samuel, uh, as news of Saul's death was coming to David, who was about to be uh, crowned the new king, but the reality for David is he loved Saul. He was his father-in-law, and, and even though he tried to kill David for a decade, he still loved him, and he knew he was the Lord's anointed. And so as this, uh, as this young man is now coming to tell, he's giving word of the death of Saul uh, to King David. This is what he says. And he said to me, who are you, speaking to this young man? And so I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he would not live after he And I took the crown off his head and his bracelet from his arm, and I brought them to you, my Lord. The thing that ended up killing Saul wasn't a Philistine. It was an Amalekite. It was the very sin that Saul was unwilling to deal with was the thing that ended up running him through with the sword, taking his crown off his head and giving it to another. And the same's true in our life, by the way. When we won't deal with a thing, the reason the Lord hates us, hates that thing, isn't because he dislikes us. It's because he knows what it's going to do and disrupt in our life, just like he knew it in the case of Saul, just like he knows what it's going to do with hypocrisy in the church. That hypocrisy is going to be the thing that drives you away. It's going to drive people away. And so I want to encourage you guys to be holy, for the Lord is holy. Now, the next thing that the church actually derives through purity is power. Verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all in with one accord on Solomon's porch. Yet, verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So what we see is now the early church, uh, people think there's all kinds of healings going on, but after two of your members get struck dead by the Holy Spirit, folks aren't as excited about joining your church, it turns out. And so that's what they said. They're, they're highly esteemed, but people are a little reluctant to join into that church. But the thing is, uh, purity when we witness it, is not easy for us to grasp. When we start to actually get a taste for what that is, it's, it's very contradictory to what the flesh desires. And so it, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around. It's not the most popular. But verse 14, And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, 
multitudes of both men and women. And so while there were some that were hesitant to join in, the reality is um, through the subtraction of Ananias and Sapphira, through the elimination of this hypocrisy, uh, they, in fact, multiplied. And that's a spiritual truth. Uh, it's not always the most popular spiritual truth to share, but oftentimes when uh, people are subtracted from a church body for one reason or another, there's actually a multiplication process that happens if we allow it to take place the way the Lord commands. And so here we see hypocrisy subtracted. Now multiplication happens for this early church. And what we also see is that as they're able to perform these miracles and these amazing things taking place is that there is an inextricable link between power and purity. We see uh, and desire to have powerful things actually take place in our life. What the Lord is really asking is, are you willing to be uncomfortable enough in the thing that you so desire, that you so like? Are you willing to be uncomfortable in that area so that you can see powerful things happen? And, and the truth is for us, especially in the Western church, boy, we love comfort. I mean, if there's one thing that we worship more than all other things, we worship us some comfort. When Angela and I were uh, given the opportunity to adopt uh, Will in Brooklyn, this was the thing the Lord brought up to me. You talk about convicting. You don't always realize how much you worship comfort until the Lord brings it up. But as we were praying through this and the pros and cons list, and we got these lists uh, the Lord basically told me in prayer, I don't really care about your list. <laughs> you worship comfort. Like, oh, you know what? He's right. I do. I do love comfort. I do love that piece of things. And so oftentimes this is what happens. We are not willing to be made uncomfortable, and there, therefore we don't see the real power of the Lord working in our life. Now verse 15, and so they uh, brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing might, uh, passing by might fall on some. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so what we see is people were so excited about getting close to the disciples, so excited about what the Lord was up to, that they would even bring their sick and their hurting just so the shadow of the apostle Peter passing by might touch them and they might be healed. Now, was there any power in the shadow of Peter? No. There was no power in his shadow whatsoever. But what it was for people was a touch point. It was a touch point for them to be able to see the work of God in their life. Think back to Jesus walking through the streets in Matthew chapter 9, and there was a woman there who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had this uh, horrible uh, menstrual flow for 12 years. She was anemic from all the blood loss. She was an outcast because she was continually unclean. She couldn't go into the temple to worship. It was this horrible circumstance, but what she purpose in her heart was, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, boy, if I could just touch him in some way, then I, I believe he can heal me. And so what happens is as she touches the hem of her garment, immediately she's made well. It didn't mean that Jesus's garment was magical or somehow all-powerful. It was her faith was activated by the touching of the garment. And so oftentimes, this is what our faith needs to be able to grow. We need some kind of touch point. 
So whether it's laying on of hands or an anointing of oil or whatever the case may be, that if people need a touch point, we will give them some kind of a touch point, a healthy one. We will give them that so that they can understand it's not about the thing. It's about the creator of all things. It's ultimately about the one who is faithful, right? If, if you want to know what I can have faith in, what you can have the utmost faith in in your life is the one who is continually faithful. It's not in you. It's not in me. It's not in any of our abilities. It is in him who is faithful. And he is good to us in all situations, in all spots. One last place in Scripture as we close. Lamentations chapter 3. And as I go back here to Lamentations, this was written by uh, Jeremiah the prophet. And in a season as Jeremiah was sitting outside of the city walls of Jerusalem watching it uh, be destroyed. He was watching the nation that he loved and the people that he loved be completely ransacked because of their idolatry, the thing that they would not give up from way back in the time of Joshua. And so he's watching them being carried off, and he's lamenting, hence the name of the book. He's crying out to the Lord. But what he comes to in this verse, I'm actually going to start in verse 20. He says, My soul still remembers and sinks within me, and this I recall in my mind, therefore I have hope. Jeremiah, in the middle of this scenario, has hope as he remembers. But what's he remembering? He's remembering the goodness of God, him who was faithful. Verse 22, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. If that is you today, I want to encourage you, continue to wait on the salvation of the Lord. Do not give up because his mercies are new and our faith does not reside in a person or in a place or in a shadow, but it resides in the one who is faithful. So Father, we thank you and we praise you for your great faith can somehow latch onto your faith through what little bit of faith you give us. And Lord, we can exercise that faith in you. Father, I pray today that we would be able to do that, that we would have a faith that holds strong, that holds fast to you because you are faithful. Lord, thank you that you have a track record. Thank you that in our lives you show yourself to continually be faithful. Thank you that you give us access to things like uh, purity and power and holiness. Lord, we are so blown away. And thank you for the way you unify us as a people together through the belief in you as our King of Kings. Oh, come quickly, Lord. <laughs> we thank you so much. We praise you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Can you please stand? Let's all sing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father.
shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness morning by morning new mercies I see all I have needed thy hands have provided great is thy faithfulness Lord unto to 